So my name is Michael Hans. I'm the lead minister of the New Life Family of Churches. And that man that just touched my face is um, the creative pastor of our New Life Family of Churches. If this is your first time here, New Life is a movement of churches. We have three churches at the moment as part of our family. We have one in Coolangatta, Gold Coast, and in the heart of Brisbane City. Debatably, maybe the best church there is as part of the family. But I might be a little bit biased there. So uh, friends, it's so thankful that I can be here today. Massive um, thank you to Pastor Alex and Kath Stark for just allowing me to come and bring a word. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Crucial Conversations. And this is my first time preaching in Brisbane since my wife and I welcomed our second son, Banner, into the world. If you're, if you're wondering uh, where my first son is, he's the guy wearing the Manchester United uniform after the service and will be joining us for Nando's. So I hope you can come along. On that note, uh, I'm, I'm discussing something tonight that uh, is, is, um, I'm passionate about and I think some of you are either experiencing or walking through. And because of that, I'm going to need the, the help of the Holy Spirit just to be clear, succinct, um, and also to ensure we get to Nambo, Nambos, Nambos and Nando's on time. Amen. Would you join me as we pray? So gracious God, we center our hearts and our minds right now on you, the, the beginner, the end, the good and just and mighty and loving God. Jesus, we thank you so much that you made yourself known to us that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can hear you today. We can hear what you might be saying to us. So I pray boldly, turn down the distractions of this world, that we might but for a moment turn up the voice of your Holy Spirit, that we, we might sit under the weight of the Word of God. I know, God, what, what we need to hear is not Michael today. We need to hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit. So as always, less of me, Father. More of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And James, my man, you're going to follow me along with the PowerPoint there. Beautiful. If you chuck that first slide up, James, in 2019, um, a little bit of my world was rocked because one of these, uh, the, the, this Christian leader, this singer-songwriter, posted something on Instagram that no one was expecting. This man of God who, for most of my life, 20 years, had actually been following Jesus, been writing songs about Jesus in one of the, the Australia's and the world's largest churches, posted on Instagram this public picture and an explanation that as of 2019, he was walking away from the Christian faith. And something deep inside me was shaken because this was a man who I'd grown up singing his songs in church. Some of us have sung his songs. In fact, New Life still sings his songs. This is a man who I thought theology was rich, knew the Bible, was intimate with Jesus. Like it was, and then he posted, and I'm like, what? And something inside me was shaken deeply to know that a man like this that I highly esteemed and respected could, could walk away from the faith that I thought we shared. And this is what he posted as part of his explanation, not to his family, not to his church, but, but to the world. He says this, how many miracles happen? Not many. And no one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? And no one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? And no one talks about it. He goes on to finish and say, Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet 
They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. And he walks away for a very repetitive reason, because no one talks about it. Because no one talks about it. These words that will be on the screen behind me, maybe some of you can relate to. This frustration that the deeper questions of the Christian faith, no one seems to be talking about. And, and one of the reasons why this shook me was because, number one, I highly respected this man. I highly respected his work, his faith, his journey. But the second reason it shocked me, shocked, shocked me, was because it wasn't my experience. See, I, I didn't grow up in a faith where we didn't talk about difficult things. And to have a man who, who could have walked the Christian walk for 20 years and not have felt like the church was a safe place to talk about things that were deeply important to his heart was foreign to my experience. But I realized that maybe it's not foreign to everyone else's experience. That some of you are here today and you're in a moment of crisis because you feel like the church is talking about everything but that which is close to your heart. And you're crying out along with this guy, man, no one seems to be talking about this stuff. And, and I'd hesitate to offer a simple answer and, and say, I actually believe people have been. That there is no question that is new. That there is no doubt or concern that is fresh, that there have been people who have been questioning, doubting, criticizing, and concerned about the legitimacy of the Christian faith for thousands of years, and it stood firm. Now, you might be new to church today and going, boy, did I choose a cracker of a Sunday to come along to new life. So far, he's not told me any reason why I should be here. And, and that might, that's fair. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> I say this because what we see this man walk through is not something I want to demean him for or, or, or talk negatively about him because what he's walking through is something that we call deconstruction. And if you're sitting here today going, decon what? Then you've come to the right place. But for many of you, you know what deconstruction means. It's the process where people begin to unpick values and belief systems that they've held for most of their life. See, in this series, Crucial Conversations, uh, we're talking, in fact, this would be a humble definition, our crucial conversations are about things that matter to the heart of God that take place in the heart of humanity. And what we see this man walking through is something I think many people in our world walk through. They begin to question. Now, I want to highlight, Pastor Alex did a great sermon a couple weeks ago on doubt and how to wrestle with doubt. Deconstruction and doubt are not always the same thing. Why deconstruction might include doubt, it doesn't need to be centered on doubt. And let, let me get to what deconstruction is in just a moment and why it's important. But let me tell you about my experience of when I faced the reality of deconstruction. I remember it was university about 15 years ago. I sat in U University of Queensland. I was studying my, my dual degree in arts and education, majoring in history and studies of religion. And I sat in this history tutorial where I was surrounded by all these lovers of history, people who loved talking about ancient Rome and Greece and you know, the Neolithic era and all these, all these different parts. And I remember one moment we were talking about a faith known as the Zoro Zoroastrian faith. And, and this one young lady across from me piped up and be like, I can't believe anyone would believe in this faith. And, and I'm like, oh, I mean, you know, fair comment. I don't believe in it. I, I could see where she was coming from. But then she followed it up and she said, it's almost as ridiculous as those people who believe in the Bible. 
And I, it shocked me. You see, friends, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I had Christian friends. I attended a Christian church. And this was the first time I sat in a room and someone was calling me dumb. And then everyone else, I looked around for us all to laugh at her, and they all laughed with her. And I realized that for the first time in my life, I was a minority, and I was facing a world that actually found the Christian faith wanting. And, and I had not been brought up in a faith that had allowed me to ask questions and process them all the time. And I faced the reality that either I walk away from the faith or I find people to talk about the things that are matter and are crucial to a resilient and strong faith. And that's what today is about. What does it mean for Jesus to intersect, to talk about, to confront the reality of deconstruction? Why does Jesus want to be a part of these conversations? Because, friends, I believe more than anything that Jesus was passionate about stepping into crucial conversations. Our Savior, friends, is not afraid of your doubts, your questions, or your concerns. He can bear the weight of, of challenges to his integrity and to his lordship and his claims of identity. He's been doing it for thousands of years, and he welcomes us to do it again today. In fact, there's this beautiful moment in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verse 1, we're welcomed into a story that I want to analogize for a second. The story itself says, late one night, a man named Nicodemus came to visit Jesus. But I almost in my mind's eye, if I think back to 2,000 years ago, as Jesus is wherever he is residing in Jerusalem, and it's late at night, and he hears a knock on the door, and he comes downstairs, and he opens up the door, not to see John, not to see Peter, not to see Mary, but to see Nicodemus. And the Bible tells us that Nicodemus was a man who was a Pharisee and the leader of the ruling council in Jerusalem. Now, if you're new to what a Pharisee might mean, you're not quite sure what that kind of, uh, what the understanding around that is. Briefly, the Pharisees were the people, this party, this religious group who would actually lead the charge to one day crucify Christ. They were opposed to his work and to his ministry. And before Jesus stood one of their leaders, and in this moment, Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's late. Hey, I want you to come back another time. No, in fact, we are led into one of the most beautiful, crucial conversations as Jesus welcomes Nicodemus in. And, and if you give me permission, just for a moment, he welcomes Nicodemus in because what Nicodemus seems to do in the following lines of the text is he's deconstructing his Jewish faith. Because this man named Jesus has rocked up and challenged all of his presuppositions and beliefs and starts to invite him into new language about being born again and the Holy Spirit and how these things intersect with not, uh, not, not wiping away Judaism but fulfilling Judaism. And it leads this conversation to one of the greatest passages in the Bible in John chapter 3, verse 16, where God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever shall believe in him shall not die but have everlasting life. And I offer this because sometimes we can think that Jesus is against people who are deconstructing. And I want to suggest today that actually Jesus is passionately willing and wanting and longing to invite them into a conversation about their deepest questions and concerns of the Christian faith because he knows how to journey with us through them. So what is, why is this stuff important? Why should we talk about deconstruction? A man named David Kinnaman with a group uh, called the Barna Group and World Vision a couple years ago found out, uh, did research of young adults all throughout the world and found out that two-thirds of young adults who grow up in the Christian church will actually leave the Christian faith as they mature into adulthood. 
And, and, and when men postulating why, he actually offers because they no longer find the church or Christianity sufficient to answer the questions their souls are asking. He actually suggests this, that many of us today turn to our devices to help us make sense of the world, and young people especially use their screens in their pockets as counselors, entertainers, instructors, even sex educators. Why build up the courage to have what will likely be an awkward conversation with a parent, pastor, or teacher when you can just ask your phone and no one else will be the wiser? Why do I suggest this? Because, friends, when we don't talk about things like deconstruction, when we don't talk about last week things like suffering, when next week we don't confront the issue of refugees and how the church should be playing powerfully into that, women in leadership, when we don't actually step into these moments and have these conversations, it's not the fact that these conversations don't have it happen. It's just that we rob the world of the church and the faith and the Bible's voice in and amongst the cacophony of noise that surrounds the next generation. And so I want to offer today that, that when, when people start to do this thing called deconstruction, when people start to ask questions, the responsibility of the church is not to silence the question, but to step boldly into it with and alongside the Holy Spirit, who is not afraid when people are struggling with the big questions of life. What is deconstruction? A guy, uh, a guy by the name of, I'm just going to get to it, by the name of Dr. Eric Mason says this, that deconstruction is the process of reevaluating your core beliefs or evaluating whether or not the religious system you were nurtured in is what you've really embraced. I want to offer this today. Some of you are here, and I've said deconstruction a couple of times, and you're like, I have no idea what this means. Like, I, I, this doesn't make sense to me. And I just want to say to you that for those of you who may not know, deconstruction is when someone starts to recognize that the worldview that they have been living in or being a part of for many years comes smack up against reality or a catalytic experience, causing them to questioning everything they were taught, either in their childhood or even in their young adult years. Now, there are some of you here today who know someone who is in this process and journey right now. My hope today is to give you some handles not to prove them wrong or to answer all of their questions, but to journey with them faithfully. And there are those of you here today who you are deconstructing the faith. Maybe you've come to Brisbane to attend university and you grew up in a Christian home and university has opened your eyes to a world that you didn't realize was there. And I would just suggest that in and amongst that world, Jesus is not shocked by the information you've found or the experiences you've had. The Christian faith can still offer you truth and life and hope. And if you are deconstructing, what I would say is this. I pray that this church would be safe for you. That this church would be a place where you find home, you find community, and you find companionship as you walk through the valley of not only doubt, but question and concern. Because that's what the Christian community should be a safe place to test truth and find that biblical truth is not found wanting. This is ultimately what Nicodemus comes to do with Jesus. He comes to challenge, comes to question, comes to seek and discern at a deeper level who was this man who moments earlier flipped over tables in the temple and upended and spoke against the system that Nicodemus was so radically entrenched in. And we don't really know what decision Nicodemus makes at the end of his conversation with Jesus, but we do find that when Jesus went to the cross and died, Nicodemus was one of the few people who were there to help bury and, and give him honor and dignity in the tomb. It's this beautiful story. What I would offer today 
is that deconstruction, friends, is not something that is bad. I actually think it's essential to the maturation of our faith. Let me say it again. It's essential to the maturation of our faith. It's essential for us maturing as followers of Christ, but also to deconstruct your worldview is essential for you maturing your worldview to the moment that it can be resilient against whatever you may face. In fact, I would suggest that deconstruction has been something which has allowed and give permission to some of the greatest spiritual upheavals of history. 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther was taught that the only people who could access the Word of God were the ordained and those who could read Latin. This is what he grew up believing. This is what he was indoctrinated with. And Martin Luther began to ask the question, maybe this might not be true. He began to deconstruct the assumptions and beliefs he'd been taught, and he found that the biblical witness didn't hold scriptures for the few, but for the many, that all should have access to the Word of God. And so began the Reformation and the beginning of the prostate. Pro- Protestant Protestant tradition that we are a part of, that now, friends, you can all today have a Bible in your hands because people realized the Word of God was for the people of God and the people of this world. 200 years ago, a group of people called the abolitionists began to question what the Imago Dei actually meant. And guys like William Wilberforce said, what if it doesn't matter what color of your skin is, but slavery is never okay? What if we actually go to the Bible and realize the Bible doesn't support slavery, but challenges it and demands us to celebrate equality for every man and woman, no matter the color of their skin or their race or cultural background. And so we saw slavery end as a form and economic system in the Western world. Why? Because people had the courage to question their long-held assumptions and beliefs. I say this, friends, to join with this guy named Charles Holmes, who would phrase it like this. The kind of good deconstruction, this kind of good deconstruction continues as we survey church history. Many of the reformers died at the hands of corrupt religious leaders and systems that sought to silence the violence of common voices, not violence, voices of common people, changes the quote completely. Voices of common people and limit their ability to read and learn the scriptures for themselves. There's a beauty to this. There's an importance to this. So what I want to talk today, for those of you who are like, well, I still, I I just don't know. I would love to talk about why deconstruction is important to the faith process. And before you can deconstruct, you must first have, guys, the 8 a.m. service I preached at this morning, where we're like, like, think about it. If you have to deconstruct something, what must you first have done? Constructed something. Fantastic. A lot of us have played Lego as a young person. To deconstruct something, you first must have to construct something. So like all good sermons, I brought props. Amen? Yeah. I know Aaron Moore will be excited. Private joke. Sorry, brother. <laughs> so when we're talking about the construction of faith, we have first have to recognize that every single one of us have at some stage constructed a worldview. And we have, at some stage, constructed a faith. Now, if you're an atheist here, you too have constructed a pattern of belief or a belief system. And this is important. In fact, modern philosophers would call this the age or the the time of naivety. That you kind of take things as face value. If someone with authority tells you that, you know, gravity is real, you don't necessarily have to go jump to believe it. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Gravity is real. And so, too, with these issues of faith and worldview, that at a young age, we assume things are true because people we trust have told them to us. And this often isn't a bad thing. Someone comes and says to you that if you jump off a ledge, you will fall. That's called gravity. That's such a helpful piece of information. 
And that's not dangerous. That's an important thing that we should celebrate. If you question gravity is real, we have a prayer time after the service. We'd love to pray for you after that. But then we, let's step into faith. There are things that if you grew up in the Christian church or intersected with the Christian worldview at any times, you will have been taught. Like that God created the heavens and the earth and called them good, and they were good in the beginning. That's a good thing for a Christian to believe. In fact, we would still hold that as a church and as a Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died and was resurrected for your sins to give you life and life to the full. What a beautiful truth that we celebrate and believe. And so at a young age, what happens in Christianity, but I would say in every worldview, is whether by parents, by school systems, or by media, we construct our understanding of the way the world is. But the problem with this is that not all these things are not all these things are true, and not all these things are good. Let me, let me use Christianity as an example. Maybe you didn't grow up, grow up in the Christian faith, so I'm going to give you some of the things that I was taught as a young man that I don't think were really good to have in my construction of faith. That when we talk about money, that if you give more to God, God will give you more money. So if you want a nicer car, you just need to give more money to the church. It's a harmful belief. But that belief is, in so many Christians, part of their worldview. That actually if someone with pastor in front of their name does something or says something, it's always right, it's always true, it's always good, and should never be questioned. That, that can be concerning. That the church or Christianity will never fail you or hurt you. And if we're not careful, there are times when we can actually begin to form parts of our belief that are poisonous, that are unhelpful, but they get mixed in with these other nuggets of truth and goodness. And what deconstruction really seeks to do is to ultimately strengthen the faith, worldview, and system that we have had constructed around us. See, construction is the road to belief. Deconstruction is the path of concern. And it's not always a bad thing. In fact, I think Paul, if you... I genuinely believe Paul encouraged people in the New Testament to have deconstructed teachings in the church better than they did. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul comes along and he's talking to the church in Galatia who have been visited by the circumcision party, which two words that should never go together in the history of mankind, of circumcision and party. That's just a bizarre. Anyway, we can talk, our pastor Alex is going to talk about that crucial conversation next week. <laughs> And what happens is, is that they, they get informed by, by, Jew, by Jewish people and, and even by Peter himself by siding with them in a, in a moment that to be a Christian and a follower of Christ, you must be circumcised. And if you've not read the Bible, this is not true, and that's a good news for humanity. Amen? You should have been way more excited about that than you were. But what Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 7 is this. You were running a good race, he says to the Galatians. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now, many commentators and theologians would suggest that when he's talking about a little yeast, he's saying some bad teaching can actually corrupt the whole of your faith if you're not careful, if you're not diligent in questioning the things you're taught and asking, is this true and is this good? See, what Paul is saying is he's looking at a Galatian church who are burdened with the idea that they have to do this thing to follow Jesus, and he's saying, who cut in on you? And maybe some of you today have had that experience. 
you were following Jesus so well, but I don't know, you, you heard a bad piece of teaching from a pastor or, or a podcast or a sermon, and it's confused you, and there's a moment where maybe, maybe someone should say to you, hey, who stopped you? You were running such a good race. Who cut in on you? Were you questioning and working out, hey, is this something that should be included in my worldview? And what Paul says here is, sometimes deconstruction can be helpful as a Christian to actually working out what is good and true and biblical. But there are moments when, when deconstruction can not only be helpful, it, it, it can be hurtful to our faith. A guy named John Mark Comer did a bunch of work on this, and, and, and he unpacks this. Now, I know if you've come to New York, Brisbane, JMC is not a name you will be foreign to because we love your boy, John Mark Comer, a lot here. Because he says so many beautiful and helpful things. And, and I want to unpack this because sometimes we think people start questioning the faith or deconstructing because they want to live their life their way and just remove themselves from the dogma of the church. And I think this is a simplistic view of a complex journey that people are walking through. So what are some of the reasons people might walk through deconstruction that are harmful to faith? Well, there are internal reasons, and this will be on the screen. The first internal reason JMC says is that people deconstruct their faith because of broken trust. Broken trust in what? Often broken trust in the church. Broken trust in Christians. And, and, and the reality is, is that sometimes people actually start to walk away. People start to question. People start to be concerned because Christians hurt them, because the church hurt them. And friends, some of you here today know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you here today know people who are no longer here today because what happened actually ended their journey on walk with Christ. John Tyson, your other guy that you'll hear a lot from if you ever hear me preach, he says this beautiful thing. He would encourage, he'd say this, friends, we need to recognize that it's, it's very rare that the church hurts you. Very rare that the capital C church hurts you. What, what hurts you is a, is a broken people in a place at a certain time that are part of a congregation that in a moment may have been disobedient to the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. They are not reflective of the universal church, nor are they synonymous with Christ. And I'll just say today that this is a hard one for me because I know at times new life has hurt people. I've had to sit with people and apologize as a pastor because we've said something unhelpful, done something unhelpful, and, and it's just been real. But the honest truth, friends, is that if you come to new life, the only thing I can tell you we'll repeatedly do is remind you that we are not perfect but we follow a perfect God. And, and, and maybe you've, you've had to walk away from church for a while, and that can be a healthy and good thing to heal. But one thing I've realized is that sometimes we can deconstruct because of the church. We can say, oh, I really want to follow Jesus, but you know what? I'm not really going to get involved with the church. Or we, we start attending church again, but we're like, I'm going to sit in the back, and it's going to take me years till I re-engage. And part of the problem with this is that I don't think you can follow Jesus faithfully and remove yourself for long from his church. Because Jesus never has the luxury of walking out on his bride. No matter how many times the church has failed, not you, him, over the last 2,000 years committing atrocities in his name, Jesus has never given up hope of redeeming and restoring the very people he calls endlessly into the mission of God. 
To follow Christ is to be committed to a broken community, following a perfect Savior in the hope that we might reflect his goodness to the world. I'd say if the church has hurt you, if Christians had hurt you from the bottom of my heart, that is valid and true, and I am so sorry. But do not let that become synonymous with how Christ would treat you how he would act towards you. The other thing JMC says is often people walk away from the faith because of cheap grace. Cheap grace and low discipleship. The understanding that all Jesus wants to do is forgive us of our sins, and, and that's, that's the end of the story. But, but the truth is, friends, that we must be people passionately saying that Jesus doesn't want to just forgive us and free us from condemnation, but release us into a life which frees us from not only the power, but the presence of sin in our hearts. And we don't talk about this. Young adults come along, or adults. In fact, usually it's people of all ages, and their sin is challenged under church discipline or church encouragement or church formation. And they're like, I don't like you challenging what, the way I've chosen to live. And they walk away from Christ because they think that all Jesus does is want to forgive us when he actually wants to redeem all of us to be his good servants and missionaries in this world. Then there is this word. This is like an Alex Stark term, right? Ascendant secular ideologies. Every time I read it, I'm like, that's something Alex would say just off the top of his tongue. And every time I say it, I've got to like sound it out of my head. What is meant by ascendant secular ideologies is that there are these things that we take on from the world without question, and we don't submit to the authority of Scripture. And sometimes we take on ideologies from the world because the church has been so silent. For example, in times when we see people of other colors being segregated, being oppressed, being hurt, we run to critical race theory because the church is so silent on racism. So we run to something that the, that the world might offer because the church doesn't speak out enough, that the Bible itself condemns racism, condemns segregation, condemns cultural, uh, you know, this idea of ostracizing an other. We, we run to things, even like feminism, which has offered great things to the world, but ultimately is a world ideology because why the church has been so silent on the equality of women in the church that people run to the thing that's speaking about what matters to them most. And I believe God cares about male and female equality and equal opportunity in our world. And people walk away because sometimes the world is talking about and offering a better way on things that the church is silent on identity, on sexuality. We don't have robust answers, so people go to those who are making and talking about the questions. These are internal factors, but, but there are these, these are external factors, sorry, internal, but there are these external factors as well. That one of the external factors is this, if you go to the next slide for me, James, is that there is a lot of digital input and low scripture. Barna's research came back and found out that 3,000 hours a year was spent by young adults consuming media. 3,000 hours. And for a Christian, only 250 of those hours was actually based on Christian content. For non-Christians, I think it's even less. It's like 100 to 150, which means that at maximum, at minimum, 2,750 2, hours a year is consumed by young generations. And yet we, we like, hey, let's read through the Bible in a year. So I just don't have time. And, and, and there's this low sense of scriptural input that we don't actually go, okay, how does the Bible speak into these things? And we're like, no, no, well, it's easier than ever before to just type something to YouTube or Google or just kind of, in the words of one of my great leaders, med medicate our mediocrity by just binge-watching Netflix. And, and these things, they degrade and they, they waste away our faith. There's this lack of the fear of God. 
that God becomes this buddy Jesus, this, this close and, and personal friend that should never challenge or confront us, and he's not holy, transcendent, and beautiful, something completely other than us that comes close out of his goodness rather than our worth. There's this lack of this. And finally, one of the most common reasons they suggest that people deconstruct the faith is because of a wounded heart. This is why what Alex said last week is so beautiful, because sometimes we walk through suffering and God's silence on it hurts us. And we're like, why would I want to pursue this or believe in this? Sometimes that suffering is a broken relationship or a relationship we thought God should owe us but has never come. Or there's a moment of sickness or trial or pain. And these things, they begin to eat away at our faith. And what happens is if we don't talk about these external and internal factors, if we don't question them, if we don't, like Paul, come as a community and say, hey, what kept you from running the race you were called to? Who cut in on you? Eventually, the questions mount up. When we are not a community, when people can ask questions safely, what ends up happening to the faith that was constructed, and I'm going to be able to get through this whole thing without it falling over at all, is that it's destroyed. We don't only deconstruct our faith, we destruct our faith. Because what ends up happening in my personal experience is when people start to deconstruct things, they actually isolate, they walk away from community, and they walk into these echo chambers of people who just agree and affirm the questions, but they don't have strong answers based on authority and based on truth. And this is the problem, I think, that many of us need to recognize. We're facing an epidemic in the world today when, the, when, when Christians cannot offer robust answers or want to wrestle with issues well. And people will just go find those that will. Maybe this is you today. And I will just offer you that, that, that this was not Christ's intention for you. He wanted a, a robust faith, a full faith, a mature faith. And, and ultimately... I think the process of deconstruction ends in destruction because we never reach the third stage. Not only is God calls to construction, not only to deconstruction, but there is this third beautiful thing that I think we need to step into, and it's, it's reconstruction. And reconstruction is this. It's the road to orthodoxy. Now, those of you who are like, what do you mean by orthodoxy? Well, next week, Alex is going to start wearing these long robes and waving incense around the room, and it's going to be real beautiful. No, there's nothing wrong with that form of worship, friends. And if you want to do it, all power to you, brother. But we're talking about orthodoxy. Orthodoxy merely just means right belief. And see, modern deconstruction comes from the postmodern philosophy that there is no such thing as absolute truth and that no one can know anything that's absolutely true. And the Christian faith would question this, would challenge this, and would say that this is not what Jesus says. That Jesus, claim, Jesus claims something different. Jesus doesn't say what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and I hope you like me enough to believe in me. He makes this bold statement. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Which means, friends... That there is a moment where Jesus invites us not to just have questions about the things of our faith that should maybe be poisonous and corrupt, but to bring these questions and go, God, teach me to construct a faith that isn't built on cultural Christianity, but biblical discipleship. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14, Paul comes, no, I actually don't think it's Paul, a writer of the church. I know some of you are going to be like, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, and you would be correct. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 says this, and he, he kind of challenges his Jewish readers. It should be on a cut of that beautiful James. He says, in fact, though by this time many of you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. For those of you who are new to Christianity, 
Paul is not talking to you. He's talking to those of us who've been walking the faith long enough that we would be expected to have some form of maturity in what we're presenting to the world. He says, you need milk, but not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use, by constant training in the Word of God, by constant pouring over and pulling apart and communifying around the Word of God, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is the role of Christian community that we would not stay in just the elementary things of our faith, but go deeper and understand that our faith might be constructed well. That when we talk about can the Bible be trusted, we don't wait for the next sermon series on the issue. We actually go, God, take me deeper into understanding how can I trust the Bible? Why is it a good thing? Then when we question stuff like why does God send people to hell? We realize that maybe YouTube might not be our first port of call. Maybe Christian community, those who have wrestled with this well, that we might know how to answer it well. And so we begin to allow the Holy Spirit and Christian community to reconstruct our faith. This is important. And some of your friends have questions, and I would offer that Jesus seems to say there are answers. And the questions and the presence of them themselves welcome and pull you into deeper intimacy with him if you would let them. See, the most important part about reconstructing your faith, the most important part about reconstructing or constructing a worldview is this simple question. Under whose authority are you sitting? Now, that seems a really weird question, and I'll, I'll explain it, because it's a, it's a thought that just the Holy Spirit's had on my heart as I've been preaching through deconstruction. Whether you're deconstructing, constructing, or reconstructing, everyone sits under an authority of someone or something or an existential force that they ask for permission or seek authority from to believe what they believe. And too often, I'd suggest people go, I'm just trying to work out what I believe, and, and what we're actually saying is, I'm listening more to culture than I am to anybody else. No one forms their worldview or belief in a vacuum of autonomous decision-making. No one forms their worldview or their faith in a vacuum of autonomous decision-making. If you go back a slide earlier, James, often the mistake that we can make is we use the world, and the world, sorry, uses culture to deconstruct Scripture and the church. But the way of the Christian is this, that we use Scripture to deconstruct the culture and the world. Why? Because if culture is the authority by which we submit all of our beliefs, then all that needs to shift is culture and we're back at square one again. But, but if we come under something that for thousands of years, men and women of faith have, have attested to and built and seen last and build resilient discipleship, which I would, I, would, I would suggest is the word of God, then we actually go, hey God, I don't want to turn to cultural Christianity, but I also don't want to turn to a, like a postmodern culture to work out what I believe. God, what is it that you are saying is true and is good? And we allow scripture to speak to us. Friends, we begin to construct and reconstruct a faith that lasts and is resilient. I'd ask you this simply, what, are, what is sitting over you as the authority by which you submit all the beliefs and filters that you run your worldview through? Because we all do it with something, we all do it with someone. Charles Holmes goes on to say this, if we're going to move towards reconstruction, we need to prioritize the whole counsel of God. 
As we've seen throughout history, injustice, abuse, and other horrid things have not come because we've taught the Bible too much, but because we have not taught and believed the Bible enough. See, part of the reason we've been reading through the Bible this year is by the simple hope that men and women for thousands of years have seen and used this book to reconstruct societies where slavery is condemned. I've reconstructed societies where the word of God is given to the people of God, where social justice movements have been spawned, where miracles and healings and communities of faith and transformation have been ignited and catalyzed deep change in nations and cities and in lives. And so I'd ask you today, where are you at in your journey? And I'd finish with this. That if you're at a moment of construction, deconstruction, or reconstruction, I want to offer you the most important question that you could answer, that you could ask. The most important question is actually not, what does the Bible say about sex, and do I agree? The most important question is not even, hey, do I believe in hell and that God sends people to hell? The most important question, I believe, is not even necessarily, do I like church, or this guy preaching at me down the front, which most of you would probably say yes, right? You laugh too hard, Kevin. (laughs) The most important question is this. And it's found simply in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus turns to his disciples, those who would be persecuted for him, those who would face the might of the Roman Empire, those who would catalyze and see one of the greatest movements known to man begun because of their faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. He turns to them and he says this simple question, who do you say I am? See, friends, the most critical thing we have to answer if we're coming to faith, questioning faith, or deconstructing our faith, is what do you believe about Jesus? Because Jesus makes these bold claims. He says, I'm the cornerstone. I'm the central building block of all worldviews and all faiths of those who claim to be followers of me. Because here's the beautiful thing. If Jesus wasn't Messiah, if Jesus wasn't King, if Jesus wasn't Lord, then you don't have to worry about what the Bible says about sex. It doesn't matter. If Jesus wasn't God, if Jesus was just another rabbi who said a bunch of nice things that we could put on you know, Instagram posts to make us feel warm and fluffy, if that's all he was, then you don't need to know what the Bible says about hell because it's not true. But ultimately, the thing which should either undo or construct our worldview is, who was this man? A couple weeks ago, I sat in my office with a man who was questioning sexuality and his identity, and he'd invited me so so beautifully into a conversation with him, just around faith. And and I said, you know, the, the most critical thing you need to answer is not what does God say about your sexuality, not what does God say about your identity. The most critical thing I want to wrestle with you is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? He said, I don't want to answer that question. And I said, why? And we started, to, we started to unpack the reality that he realized that what he answered this with either could undo it all, not his sexuality or identity, but actually cause him to take Christ seriously or force him to realize it's not worth questioning at all. So I would ask you today, friends, boldly, not only who do you say Jesus is, but who do you know Jesus to be? Because what the world needs is not a Christian faith who could just say, you reign above it all, you reign above it all. And like, you know, which I thought the band led it beautifully in before, 
I was going to say shout out to Adrian. Shout out to Bro. Amazing job. But there's this moment, right, where it's nice to sing these truths. We feel good about them. But unless they're a personal revelation, they won't hold us. They won't keep us firm. They're just a blanket we wrap ourselves in to feel nice on a Sunday. And it'll leave us cold on a Monday. Unless the revelation of Jesus Christ not just as a Messiah, not just as a teacher, but as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of the world, it changes everything. And I'd offer today that wherever you are, I hope that you would step into asking that question and maybe finding an answer. Because you know what, 12 years ago, I was a youth leader in a church and I realized I didn't know who he was. I went to university and people would laugh at me and I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. And I just pled before God. I'm like, God, I need to, I don't want to just talk about Jesus. I could talk about the resurrection and Easter tiles blue in the face, but I didn't know him. And it was this moment of desperation where I remember coming for God and saying, Jesus, I've got to know you. And I, I picked up this book called Reason for God by a guy named Tim Keller. The third name that you'll hear me say a little bit. And I just... I remember reading as he answers all these questions about hell, about suffering and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's great to have answers, but there's something niggling at my soul. And he says this thing, maybe you've gotten to the end of this book and you're still going, it's just not enough to know the answers. And he says, it's because you need to know the shepherd. And he offers this great thing. He says, stop trying to find Jesus because the shepherd isn't found by the sheep. The sheep are found by the shepherd. And he offered this prayer that I began to pray every day. He said, just pray this prayer, good shepherd. Come find your sheep. And friends, I'm not a lead minister in a church because he didn't. But because he did. It didn't happen in a moment. It happened over time. It happened through Christians talking to me about it through small groups and church and abandoning myself in worship, placing myself in moments of challenge in university and moments of good discipleship in podcasts and pastoring relationships. I ran to Christian community, not away from it, but I was found by the shepherd. And friends, I know because I know his character. He longs to find you too. Do you know him? Do you know him? Would you stand with me this afternoon? And so I finish with just this humble question. Thanks, Ash. Sorry about the Jenga blocks. Is Christ the cornerstone that you know and love? And if not, then the answer isn't just a cognitive switch. Okay, well, Jesus is God. Cool. No, the answer is to honestly and openly start to say, Jesus, I need to know. I need to know. So maybe you're here today and you're standing here and and you're saying, Michael, I don't know Jesus. I came to church because I used to as a kid or like I'm just trying to find a community and and I've got to let you know why ever you're here today, you're here because the shepherd is calling you home. You might think you found new life, and I just I believe by supernatural, divine, sovereign power that Jesus Christ is finding you. And if you want today, I, I would love to lead you in a prayer that, that, that is just really short. It goes like this, Good Shepherd, 
come find me. I want to ask if maybe you're a Christian today. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you know what it means to rock up, to do the things and go through the motions. But I just sense that maybe God's saying, it's time for a fresh revelation. Maybe you're a parent worried about your children. Do you know that I believe the most powerful thing you can offer your children is that you have a revelation of the reality of Christ? Or maybe you're here today and you just know you need to know Jesus again, deeper, and a fresh revelation of his goodness. If any of that is you, I just love, would you open your hands out in front of you today? I just want to lead you in a prayer. Prayer that saved my life. Just goes like this. Good shepherd, come find me. Jesus, reveal to us our sin, our brokenness. The parts in our world where we've wanted you to be our friend, but not our king. Our buddy, but not our savior. Lord, I thank you that you're not worried about sorting out all our questions before you reveal yourself to us. You want us to show us your character so we might trust how you answer our questions. Holy Spirit, make yourself known to us this afternoon. I pray for all those who are longing to know Jesus for the first time. God, lead them to not only know your goodness, but to know your forgiveness for the repentance of sins. I pray for those of us who it's been too long since we've had a fresh revelation that we'd hear the words of John 3, 16, 17, not spoken to our friend at work, but spoken to us. For God so loved the world, for God so loved you that he sent his one and only son. There was no backup. This was the game plan. It was his A through the Z. He sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not die her everlasting life. For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Good shepherd, come find us. In Jesus' name.